Heavenly Father, it is good to be with your people, and it is good to worship you. You are a wonderful God. Your love is beyond compare. Your grace is is beyond measure. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And as we have been singing about him today and uh, the work that he has done uh, in our lives individually and corporately, how he forgives us for our sins, how he, how he brings us into your family and a renewed relationship with you, how he sets us free from what we were formerly in bondage to and gives us a new life, a new hope, and an eternal future. We thank you so much for Jesus and for the, his work on the cross. Father, we worship you. You are, you are worthy of all of our praise. You are more powerful than we can imagine. You are infinitely knowledgeable. And as we consider who you are and what you've done, uh, our response, Lord, in humility is to come before you in worship. And we worship you this morning in song, in, in giving, in prayer, and now we worship you by sitting under the teaching of your word. And so we pray that you would be pleased with us as we continue uh, to worship, that you would be pleased. We know you're pleased with us because of the work of your son, but that you would be pleased with this act of worship as well. Help us to have soft hearts and open minds, we pray. Amen. Give me $5 worth of gospel, please. Just $5 will do. I want just enough gospel, but not too much, because too much might mess things up. You know, now that I think about it, you better make it 10. Give me $10 worth of gospel, please. Just $10 would be about right. I want enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I want to feel good about God, but I don't want to actually begin to hate gossip and lust. I certainly don't want enough where I start to hate material things, but begin to love my enemies. That's way, way too much. So give me $10 worth of gospel, please. $10 worth should do it. I want a measure of security, but I don't want to be transformed. I like being around a group of people who seem generally nice and like they have it all together, but I don't want a substantial give of myself to them. I want something encouraging, but not something confrontational. I want wholeness, but not repentance. So give me $10 worth of gospel, please. $10 should do it. I want a safe place for my kids to grow spiritually, but I certainly don't want them to become missionaries. I want just enough gospel to add to my goals for life and to give me a sense of spiritual direction, but not much more. $10 worth of gospel, please. $10 worth should be just about right. It's a crass way to say it, but I reckon that many, many Christians in our time live with such an approach to the gospel as this. And as we continue uh, in our new series in this book of Philippians that we're calling Forward, we're talking about forward progress in a life with God. 
One of the things that Paul confronts very early in this book is this notion that $10 worth of gospel or just a little bit of gospel attached to the rest of the goals and direction of your life is hardly enough. And we see that in Philippians chapter one. Paul challenges our notion of this culture and the culture even of his day as Christians begin to follow Jesus. And someone asked you to grab a Bible, open it with me. Philippians chapter one, and today we're gonna look at verses 12 through 26. And as we do, let's read the first section. Please follow along with me as we look at Philippians chapter one, verse 12. This is what Paul says. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And the most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul begins this section of the letter, moving from what we talked about last week, the idea of growing in progress together, moving forward together. God takes us from point A to point B in our spiritual maturity in this life, and he does this not just as individuals, but corporately. This happens in concert with other Christians around you. And now he focuses attention uh, to the Christians in Philippi with a very clear message, and that is keep the cross first in your life. Because this cross, or the gospel, the good news that the cross represents, will not be bound. When some try to limit the work of God, we need to remember that he will not be limited. God accomplishes his purposes, and no human schemes will ever thwart them. It's almost laughable to think that we could try that people could try to stand up against the God of the universe and arrogantly and foolishly believe that they can promote an agenda outside of his and actually succeed. I mean, think about it for a minute. He's God. (laughs) He is all-powerful. His knowledge is infinite. He has unlimited resources at his disposal. He will accomplish his purposes, and nothing will stand in the way to defeat him. And he will receive glory and honor and praise for himself as he does. And yet, when you look at human history, you see repeated attempts by people, either because of lack of faith or intentional rebellion or actively promoting an alternate view of life and reality, people who will stand opposed to God's agenda to make himself known to people by saving people from their sins. And Paul writes to the Philippians being on the receiving end of that dynamic. He 
as you know, is one of the most aggressive of the apostles. He's been moving from place to place throughout the Roman Empire, fulfilling his task. He's teaching that Jesus is God's son and that he came to save people from their sins and by putting their faith in him and through their faith alone that God bestows all of this grace upon them. They come into relationship with God. They have eternal life secured for them and they grow in fellowship and community with other Christians. This is the gospel. And Paul is going throughout the empire communicating this gospel and thousands of people are coming to Christ. And as they're putting their faith in Jesus, they're committing themselves to each other to grow in Jesus. And so they form all these little local congregations of churches. And these new Christians are beginning to look at their lives differently than they've ever looked at it before. And they're starting to live out this gospel daily. And this is becoming a threat to those in the community. The ideals of the gospel are very different than the ideals of the Roman Empire. And the ideals of the gospel are very different than those of the Jewish faith that is practiced throughout that empire. And so as new Christians, recognizing that Jesus is God's son, and they give their lives in service to him, this meant that they were no longer recognizing the emperor as the deity above them. Nor was this emperor the one that was now garnishing their complete allegiance. On the other side, by recognizing that Jesus is God's son and giving their lives in service to him, this also meant that they no longer had complete allegiance to the high priest or the Sanhedrin or the temple in Jerusalem. These people were a threat. On this side, they were a threat to the Jews. On this side, Paul was a threat to the Romans. He's viewed as a problem in multiple directions, but the reality of the situation is that it really wasn't Paul that was the threat. It was the gospel. The gospel was a threat to the conventional wisdom and common practice of the day. And therefore, the gospel and the gospel workers must be silenced. And so Paul was imprisoned. This is important to recognize because this is a reoccurring theme throughout history and it is a theme that you will see in your own life if you decide to serve Jesus at all. And that is when the gospel threatens the conventional wisdom or common practice of the day, there will always be attempts made to silence it. But no matter what it looks like in our short-term limited vision, Christian, know this. The gospel will not be bound. And so Paul gives a report. It looks like his ministry is over. He's under house arrest. But rather than be defeated, God uses the imprisonment to display this wonderful irony. The imperial guard the very ones who were supposed to keep him in prison so that the gospel doesn't go out anymore, they become converted and put their faith in Jesus. And then they become missionaries. And guess what? The gospel goes out all the more. The gospel will not be bound. And so Paul says in verse 12 and 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, read between the lines, it looked like everything was over, 
But this has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The success of the gospel, when all things looked grim, is a great reason for confidence. It's a great reason for confidence for Paul and for other Christians who knew him. It's a great reason for confidence for you and for me. And he even talks about this in the very next verse, 14. Most of the brothers, having become now confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. My friends, we could give dozens of incredible accounts throughout history in which the gospel challenged the conventional wisdom and human uh, common practices of the day. And therefore, as a result, rose up people who would try to silence it. But the gospel will not be bound. God will accomplish his purposes in this world and through human history. We could give example after example. I just give one, the nation of China. I think of how the Boxer Rebellion in the early 1900s, many Western missionaries were slaughtered. Throughout their history, the communist government has outlawed Christianity in different segments and even expelled missionaries from the nation. But the Christians who remained there were servants of Jesus, and the gospel spread like wildfire throughout the house churches in that country, even though illegal, people risking their lives. And other people raised up to smuggle Bibles into a country where the conventional wisdom and common practice of the day was challenged by this gospel. Other attempts to silence the gospel had been made in the nation. But the gospel will not be bound. And so, still far from a Christian country... Christianity continues to grow in the nation of China at an alarming rate. One scholar, Yang Fanang of Purdue University in Indiana, says that the Christian church in China has grown by an average of 10% a year since 1980. Every year. He reckons that on the current trend, there will be 250 million Christians in China by the year 2030, this making China's Christian population the largest of any nation in the world. And all of that in just 130 years. The gospel will not be bound. And the implications of this are striking. Think about a couple of them with me. We see that When the gospel is a threat to conventional wisdom and common practices of the day, you can expect some to raise up and try to silence it. What are some examples of that today? How does the gospel inform our daily living, and what are some of the attempts to silence that? Well, here are some of the issues at hand. The definition and value of human life, as informed by the gospel. The regular and common desire for war. That our culture has. The idea that money, wealth, and success does not equate value for a person, a career, or a society. Or how about the notion that thinking people, true thinking people of our time, are those who are tolerant pluralists rather than those who are loving exclusivists? What do I mean by that? I mean that there is a common narrative in today's culture that if you are 
an intelligent person, a true and thinking person, then clearly you can't believe in a literal heaven or a literal hell. And you certainly don't believe that God provides only one way to himself, the person and work of Jesus. And those who stand up against that, the attempts to silence them, are repeated. Or how about this? The concept that to be a loving person in our culture today means that you must not disagree firmly with people on matters of spirituality or eternity. And therefore, it's better to say nothing than to disagree. Here are other implications of the gospel not being bound. One very plain one is that at times, it might appear to us that the gospel, from an external perspective, is failing or hindered. But at that very same time, God may be expanding the work of this gospel in ways unseen and unknown in our limited perspective. And it's interesting to note that all of this happens through people. Through people like Paul, through people like these little churches in the Roman world, through people like the Imperial Guard, that God is going to accomplish his purposes, and he's going to do it through people. Not every person, but there's a specific type of person that it seems like he's using here. And that leads us to how this issue of the gospel relates to us personally. And that's what Paul talks about really in verses 19 through 26. And so look at it with me as we continue. Paul is in prison, and yet he still is able to say at the end of verse 18, and yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here we see that Paul puts forward by word and by example the real agenda for life. And this is something that we talk about with some regularity here at Old North. Because if we're honest... We look at this text and we love this verse that we hear in multiple contexts and it's very inspiring to us. For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's wonderfully poetic and powerful in its expression. And yet, if we're really honest, most of us can't imagine being in prison, possibly facing death, and saying truly and confidently that either option is good. That's the surprise in the text. Why? Why can't we say that? 
Why can't, when we really look at our lives very carefully, only a, a couple of us can actually say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why? Well, quite frankly, because most of us have been told that the agenda for our lives is our own. And we've been told a lie. Most of us have been trained very well in this lie. At least it's a lie for Christians. Because we have these default goals that we continue to go back to, that they revolve around our personal provision, our comfort, our entertainment. We work hard at our job so we can have more and do more and provide for our family. And as we continue to give holy devotion, wholehearted structural devotion to our careers, well, guess what happens? Most of us advance in our careers. And we can take a nicer vacation. We can have a bigger house. We can drive a nicer car. And eventually we can reach the all-American dream of retirement. We've paid our dues and now we can kick back and relax for the rest of our days. But if your outlook on life and your goals in this life are focused on your personal comfort and entertainment and provision, then you need to know something. When something incredibly difficult in your life happens because of your faith, your natural instinct will be to shrink back to become silent, to try to regain the status quo and functionally adopt the conventional wisdom and common practice of the day. Why? Because that's what we've been trained to do. And because it is very comfortable there in the known and being in the unknown of where God's agenda might lead us is incredibly uncomfortable. You know, map makers, cartographers uh, expressed this in a unique way throughout history. That most people are afraid of the unknown. Those things that we've never seen and experienced are overwhelming to us. And in the old world, in old maps, back before the world was understood in our modern terms, these cartographers would put down what they knew the world to be. And when they got to that point that they had no knowledge of or those areas of the map that were beyond their knowledge, they had a common phrase or picture that they would put on the map. And the phrase is something like this. Beyond here be dragons. Beyond here be dragons. You don't want to go out there. It's the unknown world. And nobody wants to come face to face with a dragon. You know, Christians do the same thing. We look at the unknown that giving up on our agenda and adopting another agenda in this life We look at the unknown of that dynamic and we say to ourselves in one way, shape, or form, or another, beyond there be dragons. And nobody wants to come face to face with a dragon. 
But what Paul is talking about here and what he's modeling is a totally different way of life. Rather than living life under his agenda, and just to be clear, this is what we mean, we all have this agenda for our careers, we all have this agenda for our goals, and then we tack on the spiritual things on the side. But Paul is talking about a very different agenda. When the gospel dominates your life, your motivations, your goals, they begin to change. No longer are you most basically concerned with your material advancements. Yes, you want to do well in your careers. That's part of being a good, hard worker. But that is not what's driving you. You're not driven by your careerism any longer. And you eventually make the choice as a Christian that you're not going to live by your own agenda anymore. You're going to take on God's agenda. What is God's agenda? God's agenda stated very clearly and displayed here in this text is that you, what motivates you and your goals in life is to grow in Jesus and to help others grow in Jesus. That's God's agenda for all of you who call yourself a Christian. To grow in Jesus and to help others grow in Jesus. Now I understand that this lies very neatly in the realm of a concept for us, but for many of us, it's not an ongoing reality because we've been trained really well. We've been trained really well to want just $10 worth of gospel and to believe that just $10 worth of gospel will do. But you need to know this. That when the gospel work is your agenda for life, when you move from saying my family and my career and my personal advancement is my agenda with some God stuff attached on the sides, but when your overarching agenda becomes to know Jesus, to grow in him and help others grow in Jesus, then God uses you in every circumstance of your life in incredible, unique and powerful ways. He uses you in your job. He uses you as you coach your kid's soccer team. He uses you in your retirement years. He uses you in your illness. And even in the ways that are most difficult throughout this life, these ways can actually be more fulfilling because the agenda isn't comfort. <laughs> the agenda is to know Jesus and to help others to know Jesus. And this, my friends, is why Paul can say in chapter 2, verse 17, that he can rejoice even though he's being poured out as a drink offering. This is why he can say in chapter 1, verse 18, that he can rejoice even though he's in prison. This is why he says in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that to be a disciple means to participate in the sufferings of Christ. And he's willing to do it, gladly. Because his agenda is not his own personal comfort. And he's driven by two realities in this text, which is another way of stating this agenda of God. The first is to know Christ, and he has a very clear personal love for him. He says it in these types of ways. For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Either way, I get to be with him and for him. That is to say, I want to be with Jesus. I don't just love what he did for me. I actually love him. And I know him, and I want to know him a lot more. He expresses this in this 
term, it's far better for me to be with him. Far better for me to be with him, he says. But there's another dynamic that's equally driving to him, and that is to help others to know him. He has a genuine concern for the progress of others. And so in verse 25, he says that he will remain to continue with you all for your progress and joy. In verse 18, he says it doesn't matter what the motives of those preachers are, some good and some bad. What matters is that the gospel is preached. Why? Because it's for their good. Moving back even further, he expresses this in chapter 1, verse 9, when he says that his prayer is that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. He wants to see their progress, their growth. He wants to help them know Jesus. And this drives him. God's agenda for your life, Christian, is for you to grow in Jesus and help others to grow in Jesus. And a life given to Jesus is a life given to helping others as well. I wonder how much of your life you let your faith in Jesus define the agenda for. If there's one question I want you to go with today, it's what drives the agenda of my life? What are my biggest goals and priorities? I've been so encouraged through the years to see people who have made the decision to say, I want my agenda to be God's agenda, to know Jesus and to help others to know him. And so they do things that are very practical in nature. What this means for God's agenda to drive you is that it means you make practical decisions based on the big goal. It means for some people, they've done things like taken a specific job or a specific career path. Not a ministry career path, but based on their skills and abilities. But they've taken that job because it has allowed them the opportunity to know Jesus and help others know Jesus. Maybe at the cost of money. Maybe at the cost of personal enjoyment or personal accolades. But that wasn't the agenda for their life anyway. And so they've taken a specific job. For others, I've seen this talked about in terms of the promotion that they've been offered but that promotion moves them away from their current role. And their agenda for life is to know Jesus and help others know Jesus. But if God has them in a place and they're involved in relationships and ministry and a local church, then that promotion, though giving them a lot more career advancement and potentially a lot more money, is something they say, nope, that's not my main agenda for life. That is so contrary to the world's view. For others, this is comes into play with regard to the house that they buy. They don't buy the house that maybe they want the most or that they can just reach that upper limit of being able to afford. Maybe they don't even buy the house that has the perfect exit strategy because they're in this neighborhood at this season and that when they decide to sell it in 15 years that that they have a clear way out. But that's not their primary agenda for life. Their primary agenda for life is to know Jesus and help others to know him. And so they buy a house that's either in a specific neighborhood because it gives them that opportunity or because it's close to their church family in which they're doing a lot of these types of ministries. 
I can go on and on. This, this has implications for how we spend our free time. This has implications for what types of activities we're involved in, what type of activities our kids are involved in. This has implications for how people leverage their retirement years. No longer are Christians saying, I am going to go to Phoenix, Arizona and join the golf club and play golf the rest of my days. Instead, I'm going to say, how can I leverage the last number of years I have for the big agenda of my life? I don't have to work anymore. I'm free from the confines of work. And so how am I going to know Jesus more and help people know Jesus more? And guess what? I'm free from the confines of money. I've saved money. I was in a pension plan or whatever. And so now I can leverage those things for the sake of this big picture agenda as well. God did not give you a new life so that you could go back to a more, a more moral version of your old agenda. He gave you a new life so you could have a new agenda. But for so long, we've been sucked back into Christianizing our old agendas. Imagine with me what it would be like if just the Christians of this local church family all said we are going to move forward together like we talked about last week in Philippians 1, that God is going to do something unique here with us and it's going to be together. And part of that is that we are going to say, all of us, you're right, I'm so used to just functioning off my own agenda, but I'm going I'm to make a choice to move a different direction and have a new agenda, an overarching agenda for my life, to know Jesus and help others to know him. If the thousand plus adults of Old North Church all did that together, we wouldn't have to have any conversations about what program should we have to help people come to know Christ. <laughs> How are the neighborhoods around us going to be evangelized? What kind of work of God can we, can we and should we pray for in this region? All of those things would be happening as he empowers Christians in that big picture agenda. You know, there's two options for you, really, if you're a Christian here today. And I close with presenting you both of them. Option number one is to follow the line of someone named William Borden. Maybe some of you have heard of him. William Borden is buried in an abandoned graveyard located at the end of a garbage-lined alley in Egypt. He lived from the years of 1887 to 1913, and he was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate in Chicago. By the age of 21, William Borden was a millionaire. And by millionaire, we mean millionaire in 1900. <laughs> but he renounced his fortune, giving nearly all of his wealth to missions, because his heart's desire, the big picture agenda of his life, was to know Jesus and to help others to know him. And for him, that meant that he was going to go minister to the Muslims in China. And on his way to China, William stopped in Egypt to study Arabic. But four months after he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died. 
at the age of 25. And Randy Alcorn writes in one of his books about his encounter with Borden's gravestone. He says, as I dusted off the inscription on the headstone of Borden's grave, after describing his love for Christ and his commitment to and his love for the Muslim people and his sacrifices for God's kingdom, the inscription ended with some words I wrote down on the spot and I have never forgotten to this day. The inscription ended with this. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And then he thought to himself, Lord, what's the explanation for my life? If you place God's agenda to know Jesus and help others to know him as the agenda for your life, then you will get to the end of your days. And whether it's on your headstone or whether it is just known among your friends and family and loved ones, they will say things like, apart from faith in Jesus, there is no explanation for such a life. That is one option for the life that you can live. Here's the other option. Give me $5 worth of gospel, please. Just $5 will do. I want just enough gospel, but not too much because that might mess things up. You know, now that I think about it, you better make it 10. So give me $10 worth of gospel, please. $10 worth should be just about right. I want enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I want to feel good about God, but not so much that I actually begin to hate gossip and lust. And I certainly don't want enough where I start to hate material things, but begin to love my enemies. That is way overboard. So give me $10 worth of gospel, please. $10 worth should do it. I want a measure of security, but I don't want to be transformed. I like being around a group of people who are really nice and seem to have it all together, but I don't want to substantially give of myself to them. I want something encouraging, but not something confrontational. I want wholeness, but not repentance. I want a safe place for my kids to grow spiritually, but I certainly don't want them to become missionaries. That's for other people's kids. And I want just enough gospel to add to my goals for life, to give me spiritual happiness and security, but not much more. So give me $10 worth of gospel, please. Just $10 will do. I wonder which life you would choose. When you live life, Christian, based on your agenda, it almost inevitably becomes the latter of those two. But when God's agenda takes first place in your life, he will do all kinds of work through your circumstances. And you will end your days 
Apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. Let's pray, shall we? And ask for God's help as we consider these things. Father, it is with great joy and with great concern that we read things like, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It is with great hope that we can have such a dynamic and ongoing and deep relationship with our Savior Jesus. And it is of great concern that so many of us struggle in that very area when it comes to the big picture of our lives. And so my prayer is this. Number one, I pray that you would give us a self-awareness that we would not go to bed tonight without considering whose agenda we are living by. I pray that you would give us courage to follow you even where there might be dragons. And I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom in how an intentional shift in our life might look. How a new agenda for life might actually trickle down into the practical decisions that we make day in and day out. This is not easy, we know. And there's so much pull and temptation to move back to what we've been trained to. And so we offer this to you and we ask for your help. And we pray, Father, that you would receive much glory as you continue to move us forward together. Amen.